This is Speakeasy Theology with Chris Green. I want to begin this series on the metaphysics of Advent by reading a passage from A Theology and Outline, a book made from lectures Jens gave to an undergraduate class at Princeton in 2008. This is from the chapter on Jesus' death and resurrection. I'm beginning right in the middle. The difference between a live person and a dead person, Jen says, between a live community and a dead community can be summed up in this way. Again, vintage Jen's, let's sum it all up in, in one small sentence. And this is how he does it. A live person or a community has a future. A dead person or community does not. As he'll say elsewhere, the difference between a live and a dead person or community is that the living can surprise us. So surprise and future, these are, these are core concepts for him. A live person has a future, a dead person does not. And therefore death must be the opposite and the enemy of the God who is portrayed in Israel's memory of its own history. I've been insisting that the God portrayed in Israel's historical memory is a God who is active in that history. Now, to be active at something is to be aiming at something. To be active in history as opposed to simply inhabiting it is, in a famous phrase of 20th century theology, to be open to the future. To be aiming at, to be grasped by what is not yet. Now, this, again, basic to everything Jens does, more or less, this notion that God is what makes the future possible. God is what makes the future possible. Now, in another sense, God is what makes the past and the present possible, too. We'll, we'll discuss that as we go. But that in, in a distinct way, God is related to the future. God is what gives us future. When you hear people say that they want to live in the present, the only answer to that is, well, where else do you suppose you would be living? Sometimes they mean that they want to live in the present just for the present. But the only way to do that would be to be dead. They would be living for the present, having no relationship to the future. To be in history is precisely not to be dead. It is precisely not to lack a future. Now, as we're moving through this, I mean, there, there's so much. I mean, this invites response or even provokes response. But rather than stop along the way with every provocation, I want to kind of keep attention on the heart of the claims he's making and prepare for that reflection on what that might say to us about being people of Advent and Advent expectation. The God portrayed in the Old Testament in Israel's memory of its life is the God who is active in history, the God who acts. Another favorite way of characterizing that God in Scripture and in the church's tradition is to say that he is the living God. That is to say that God has a future toward which he aims, and that he involves those who involve themselves with him in that same future. That Israel lives with the God that she has means that she is open to a future. It means that she is supposed to be going someplace, aiming at someplace, some promise given to Abraham. Thus, God and death are flatly opposed to each other in Israel's understanding of things. And that, that sentence coming right there at the end of the paragraph, again, sums up so much of what Jensen's doing, not only in this lecture, but 
in his entire project. God and death are flatly opposed to each other in Israel's understanding of things. And he's, he's privileging Israel's understanding of things as it's given to us in what Christians have traditionally called the Old Testament. And he's also, of course, assuming a particular read of those texts, as, as you'll see. Now we get another kind of characteristic Jensonian move in that he's going to contrast Israel's understanding of things with all other worlds, with all, with all other traditions. This is not religiously common, opposing God and death in this way. Think, for example, of the religion of ancient Egypt, where the dead and the gods are very nearly identified with each other, where the way to become a god is by dying. That is not how Israel saw its god. And because its god and death were opposed to each other, through most of its history, Israel hardly knew what to think about death. Now, again, you have statements like this, uh, kind of offhanded comments about what Israel did and didn't know, that are provocations. Right? They, they incite response, which is what made conversation with Jens so lively. But we have to stay somewhat focused. Through most of Israel's history, it got along by finessing the matter. For Israel, like all nations, more or less assumed its own immortality. Americans can conceive of America losing its power. We can conceive of America being defeated. We can conceive of America being broke. But we cannot really conceive of a world without America full stop. Nations just assume their own immortality, and Israel did the same. And so long as individual Israelites identified themselves closely with the community, then the immortality of the community sufficed. I may die, but what I really am is just one link in the chain of Israelites, and I will live on in the continuance of the nation. But in Israel's case, this assumption of national immortality could be challenged. For Israel knew something what, that other nations, by and large, will not admit, that it had a beginning. Jens, throughout his, his career, was a political commentator, too. Right? He, he, had, he had takes on politics and economics. He was a philosopher and public intellectual as, as much as a theologian. You, you can see some of that in those paragraphs. The metaphysical dimensions here that concern us right now are the ways in which he's thinking of what a beginning is and how having a beginning tells us that we might also have an end. And that's, that's of course, apparent throughout Christian tradition, even though Jens is often critical of Augustine, that is in many ways the insight Augustine has that his beginning, the nature of his beginning tells him the truth about what his end will be. There was a time before Abraham when there was not any Israel and when the world had gotten along. So there could be a time when there was not any Israel any longer and the world would continue. Because Israel knew that its beginning had been an act of God within history, it knew also that it could come to an end within history. And I, I think if, if I were in conversation with Jens or if I were giving a response to his lecture, I, I would insist on nuances at these points, right? on, on saying some of this, much of this, slightly differently at least. Because Israel knew that its beginning had been an act of God within history, I, I don't think that that entails an awareness 
that it would come to an end within history. I, I think many of us, for example, would would have been taught that we have a beginning, you know, that that we were created by God in collaboration with our parents, so to speak. But we we still did not think of ourselves as having an end that we we would be immortal that our, the the soul will live forever. So I I don't I don't think that the one entails the other for us or for anyone else. But again, keeping our eye on the ball, the the point he's making about beginnings and ends and about the past and the future and about how all of that relates to who God is and where God is, like that that's what I want to attend to. He then turns to the the metaphor or the 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 figure that gives the all of the lectures their their focus the story of Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones when the people of Israel returned from the exile they formed a tiny religious community ruled by other people the exile seemed to have brought Israel to its end thus the lord's question to Ezekiel has death won the Lord answers by commanding Ezekiel to prophesy the dead Israelites back to life. Ezekiel obeys, and indeed the dead bones hear the word of the Lord. So this, this for Jens, is, is the moment of truth. Israel has come to an end, or seemingly so, and God brings them to life, brings them to life again. I think it's it would be worth saying that it's not so much that Israel knew it had a a beginning as that Israel experienced a kind of end in the exile that made it clear that they had had a beginning. The way that Jens is telling this story here, the beginning is, is what comes first in the order of knowing that Israel recognizes that it's created and therefore recognizes that it, it can be brought down to death and the question is, will it be, and what will happen if they are brought down to death? But I think both historically and theologically, and here you can you can hear the inf- influence of John Baer on my thinking, I think both historically and theologically, both in the order of knowing and in the order of being, it's death that comes first for Israel. It's the experience of exile. It's the experience of a shared death, a shared dying, that makes what happened in the beginning significant that and and the, and the same will hold true with the story of Jesus it's it's what happens in Jesus death and then and then in the aftermath of his death that tells you what his birth was now of course you you the beginning is first in some way but it's not first in our knowing Looking back at the beginning of Israel's history, Jen says, one can see that something like this was going to be the inevitable turning point. The Israelites followed and worshipped the God who was the enemy of death. Yet death was a predominant reality in which the Israelites lived. This was going to be inevitable. But perhaps, perhaps, I, I think we can see that it was going to be inevitable only once it's happened. Jumping ahead a few lines. So Israel's question is really the question that every people eventually asks. 
Does death win? Does life have any other point than its own refutation? What happened to Israel from one point of view then was the historical outworking of the question of all questions. So you can see here Jen's, the the influence the question of death has on him. It's the question of all questions. Does, does death win? To be or not to be? And he, he takes up Heidegger right at that point. He calls him the greatest and most wicked philosopher of the 20th century. He says elsewhere that he... He heard Heidegger give lectures and thought it was kind of a mixture of BS and these profoundest insights. And you, you see that in this description, too. He built the whole structure of his thought on the message that what it means for me to be a human being fulfills itself precisely in that I not only die, but live my whole life doing nothing but affirming my oncoming death. In any case, the question posed to Ezekiel by the outcome of Israel's history with God is the same question at the heart of the history of Western philosophy, especially modernity. Does death win? The Christian church claims that Jesus' resurrection is the Lord's own answer to this question. Does death win? The resurrection is God's response. Now we get to what I most want to focus on in the in this kind of initial conversation what then does this resurrection look like? And now, now we get to Jen's metaphysics, what, what he's going to say about what is happening in the dying and rising of Jesus of Nazareth. Two sorts of events are described. His tomb is found empty, and his former disciples meet him in various situations. Now, at this point, some initial skepticism is surely called for. And indeed, the Gospels seem to be perfectly aware of that. As the Gospels tell the story, one of Jesus' own disciples did not at first believe that Jesus could actually be alive. The ancients, you see, were no more prejudiced on the matter than we moderns. If anything, the opposite is the case. After all, you do not need to be a molecular biologist to know that the dead do not customarily pop back up again. You do not need an electron microscope to ascertain that irreversible molecular changes are taking place in a corpse. All you need is your nose. The fact that the tomb was empty was a shock nor was it taken as proof of Jesus' resurrection. Somebody could simply have moved the body, and that is indeed the story that the Roman authorities put out. They lost the body of this notorious prisoner, or else it had been swiped. On the other hand, the resurrection appearances at meals on the road and a little assembly of disciples hiding out from the police are another matter. If you meet someone, you are inclined to suppose that he is alive, unless, of course, you are superstitious and expect to run into ghosts or ectoplasmic manifestations. Those determined to think that Jesus stayed dead have thought throughout the centuries, have throughout the centuries, adduced various theories for explaining the so-called resurrection appearances. The disciples are said to have shared a mass hallucination or to have formed a conspiracy to make up the story and the like. But as the most philosophically sophisticated German-speaking theologian of my generation, Wolfhard Pannenberg, pointed out, there is absolutely no evidence for any such hypothesis. And he then explores briefly in, in, a, in a few sentences Pannenberg's insistence that Jesus' resurrection is, is really the best and only truly viable historical explanation for the evidence we have of the early Christians. Jens, for his part, thinks that's that's a bit too much to claim, but he does hold that there's certainly no evidence that counters what Pannenberg 
is holding. Right? There, there's no, there's no proposition he says that covers the evidence any better than that one does. Besides that, this is where Jen's lands. Here is the point at which this alleged piece of news, Jesus is resurrected, either grabs you or it does not. If it does grab you, if you believe Jesus was raised, Christians will attribute this to the Holy Spirit. It either grabs you or it doesn't. If the accounts of the resurrection are anywhere near correct, that is, if people were in fact meeting this Jesus who had been dead for three days, then Jesus was not resuscitated. That is, whatever happened to him is not analogous to what happens to people whose hearts have stopped for a long time and suddenly start beating again. Jesus was not resuscitated. Although the tomb was thought to be empty, and though his resurrection as was promised to Ezekiel is a bodily resurrection, this is not a ghost, not a pure spirit, but somebody with a body. That body is very strangely related to time and space. And now, of course, we're in the metaphysical deep end. This, this is what tells us the way God is God for us. Where to look, how to respond, what to expect in our relation to God given that this is how God is God with us. Where is he, Jesus, between appearances? It is quite clear that he was not checked into the Jerusalem Hilton. He is not hanging out, waiting to come and show himself again. When he meets one of those who see him, from where does he come to them? Nor is this body impeded spatially as we are. One of the most central stories depicts Jesus suddenly appearing to his disciples in a locked room. Did he walk through the door, or was the door there, not there for Jesus in the same way as it was for his disciples. We will come back to the metaphysics later on. However we work them out, we will need to say how Jesus' resurrected body is related to time and space. So that that's the heart of the question. And we'll come back to reading more of Jen's in a moment. And I want to say that if we're going to think about the metaphysics of Advent, when we're, we're looking for the coming of the Lord, when we're expecting his arrival, we do have to have some sense of where he's coming from and what his coming would be like. What, what I was given growing up was a just flatly, crudely, spatial and temporal account. I, I was taught, as perhaps many of you were, and I say taught, not all of this was explicit. Most of it was, was implied, in part because I think that the, the teachers had never really thought about it themselves. It was not just assumed, but presumed upon. It was, it was so basic, there wasn't even reflection for it. But that eternity is a condition for God. Heaven is a condition for God in the same way that time and space or time and the earth are for us. So when we said space, or we thought spatially, we were thinking about the earth. And when we thought about time, we were thinking about human history, cut down to the size of you know, creationism. So we were assuming that we lived under those conditions. We lived on the earth, and we lived in this creationist History, these 6,000 years, uh, a, a history that was going to last 7,000 years. 
if that long. Then it, from 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 beginning to end, right? Of course, there were no there were no evolutionists in in the churches I grew up in. No no theistic evolutionists. In the same way, we thought God was in eternity in heaven. God was bound by those conditions. And and our theological problems were in many ways created by that tension, imagined tension between God's conditions and our conditions. We're under the conditions of time and space. God is under the condition of eternity in heaven. And now, how is God going to get to us? Again, we thought of it, if we thought of it at all, in the, the most basic spatial temporal terms. Jesus was in heaven, and that is a space far, 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 far away from us. One preacher even said it, that, that directly, like that heaven is in the farthest corner of the universe, whatever that would mean, right? That heaven is, is very far away. And Jesus coming back, the advent we're expecting, is the culmination of traveling. Jesus is literally traveling back, coming back to us again, riding a horse, riding a white horse from, from there to here. And that in that appearance, he's going to show up suddenly in the Holy land on the Mount of Olives. There, there's going, again, preachers would say, this, this is something that will be filmed. It's something that will, will show up on, I remember one preacher speculating that when Scripture predicts that every eye will see him, it means that Jesus is coming back, could have come back only after the advent of television, because that's the way in which every eye will see him coming. He'll he'll come, appear in the sky, put his feet down on the Mount of Olives, and the news will be there. The cameras will be rolling, and that's how every eye will see him. And in fact, just to give you a sense of how deeply impressed we were by that and how deeply that was impressed on me, my earliest my earliest nightmares are about the rapture. And one of them, in in one of them, I'm one of these nightmares, I'm jumping on the trampoline, which was outside my parents' house. And as I'm jumping, suddenly the sky starts to kind of unfurl, almost like paper unfurls as it's burning. And I see the face of Jesus appearing kind of as the sky burns away. And I'm terrified by it. It it was horrifying because I I wasn't sure that I was ready for the end of everything. In fact, I was pretty sure I wasn't. I mean, I was, you know, what, six or seven years old at the time, so steeped in sin, no doubt, but terrified by the thought of the end of everything. But notice how for my my unconscious, Jesus is, is quite literally up there, right, This in, in the most straightforward way. So I, I think if we're going to confront that and grapple with that, as Jens is doing, we, we, we have to think slowly 
and carefully about what do we mean by heaven? What do we mean by eternity? What are we talking about when we talk about time and space and our conditionness in relation to God and the conditions that are or are not there for God. And so to, to cut to the chase on that point, there are no conditions for God. Right? Like God is conditioned by nothing but God. God is not in heaven as a condition. God is in heaven as a grace to us, as a gift to us. But God is, is not somehow hemmed in by heaven or by eternity. God is not at the mercy of the way that he knows his, his omniscience or his omnipresence, his omnipotence are not themselves conditions for him. He's not, he's, he's not some problems are not created for him by the fact that he knows all things that he knows the end from the beginning does not make it difficult for him to be present to us. And, Assuming that God has conditions, that God's nature dictates what's possible for God to be and to do with us. I mean, I, I think that's right at the heart of virtually every theological problem we have. Another way of saying this is that our theological problems come down to what we think the relationship is between person and nature. Is a person curtailed, constrained by what nature just is so that all a person can do is what we already know a nature is capable of or is nature just a way of naming the integrity of how this person lives the the way the kind of recognizable shape this person's freedom has taken with us up to this point there's a there's a footnote in it's footnote seven or eight i think in this essay on the Lagos of Sarkos, the word without flesh, in which Jensen just says, whatever a nation, whatever nature is, or whatever a nature is, he's pointing to this, to this problem. Like a nature is not a given thing that predetermines what a person can do. Whether we're talking about the divine persons and the divine nature, or we're talking about human persons and the human nature, the question might be different with angels. We'll, we'll come to that. But it's, it's not a case, it's not the case that God's nature impinges on God's personal freedom any more than it's the case that my nature impinges on my personal freedom. That there, although those things obtain for entirely different reasons, right? I mean, the first is because God is God. The second is because God is God for me. But one last thought on this before we return to Jens. The perhaps the, 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 the most disastrous account of this is assuming that the father's nature, justice, is at odds with the son's, or that the father and the son are internally conflicted. That there's some way in which God's attributes are in rivalry with God's desires. And I'm going to explore that more in, in future conversations in this series. But for now, th this, is, this is what you should underline. 
There are no conditions for God but God. God is the only condition for God, which is just another way of saying, you know, God is unconditioned. When we when we say God loves us unconditionally, what we mean is not that God loves us no matter what we do, although, you know, that's true. It's that God loves us without constraints put on his love by his nature are ours, by the nature of eternity, by the nature of heaven. God is is not hemmed in or curtailed. God, God is, is not in any way restricted by any conditions in the way that he loves us, in, in, in the fact that he loves us. All of that holds together right in this question about where the risen Jesus is and how he's present. As, as Jens puts it, how Jesus' resurrected body is related to time and space. So we're going to take just a moment, a break. And when we come back, we're going to pick up in another essay by Jens on real presence in which he's, he's dealing with that question of how Jesus' body is related to time and space. So now I'm going to be reading a bit from a collection of essays called Lutheran Slogans, Use and Abuse, and published by ALPB. And in, in this essay called Real Presence, and I'm going to move from that to a second essay also in the same collection. This is chapter 8 in this little collection. It's only, what, 100 pages or so? Not even that. But just a a few, it's 80 pages, just, just a few essays, but sometimes this, well, often this is where Jens, I think is at his best in these kind of compressed articles and, and these narrow spaces. He, he, he moves really well in them. So this is a chapter on real presence and I'm going to read not, not the whole of it by any means, but a, a few, a few of the key paragraphs. The real presence of Christ in the Eucharist is a widely ecumenical slogan, but Lutherans seem to have a special fondness for it. He is really there. I mean, really, really. From one point of view, the phrase does say all that needs to be said. When the Eucharist is celebrated, the consecrated bread and cup of wine are the presence among us of the risen, embodied Jesus Christ. But there is another aspect to the matter. It may also be that we are so vehement with the slogan, because it can cover questions we would rather not think about. So, again, classic gins. He's affirming the fact that we refer to the real presence, but insisting that we think carefully about it. What do we mean when we say that Christ is really, really here? Let me pose one such question. Uh, This is one of the questions he thinks is, is kind of papered over by our insistence that Christ is really present. To which, and of course, when I say our insistence, not everyone of us has been has been trained to believe that or to say that. He's talking as a Lutheran to Lutherans. I, of course, agree with him and with them about the real presence. But, of course, many Christians do not. What does the body of the risen Christ look like? What does the body of the risen Christ look like? This, this I think is what I love most about Jens. 
his his kind of readiness to ask what he what he elsewhere calls the dumb questions, right? that they or the stupid ones. What what does the body of the risen Christ look like? He one of my favorite books is is by him. I mean, I, I like them. I'm I'm great. I'm grateful for them all, even the ones that I don't love as much as the others. I, I'm I'm deeply grateful for them all. But in, in the way that you know, I'm grateful for all the novels of Cormac McCarthy, even though I don't have the same fondness for all of them for all kinds of reasons. But his exchange with his granddaughter when she was only eight about where God is and how God is and just a range of a theological conversation with an eight-year-old like that, that attracts me to the way that he thinks and the fact that he, he thinks boldly and has, you know, gave his life to, to reading broadly and deeply and closely, but he's not afraid of asking these questions that are embarrassing to ask, at least in some circles. This is how he answers it. If it really is a body, it must look like something. Is there extant somewhere a human organism which looks like a first century Galilean Jew and which is somehow identifiable as the one named Jesus? What is the risen body of the Jesus? What does the body of the risen Christ look like? Is there extant somewhere a human organism which looks like a first century Galilean Jew and which is somehow identifiable as the one named Jesus? Or what? Perhaps readers might pause to consider what vision first springs to their mind's eye. And I think that's, I think he's right. We need to think about that. We need to think about it carefully. So I'm going to jump ahead now. He, he gives a couple of possibilities. And again, the, the entire essay is very much worth reading. But I'm going to come back to... He's, he's given some possibilities in terms of what how Christ is related to what's happening on the table at communion. But I'm going to pick up again with that question. What does the body of the risen Christ look like? It must, on this scheme, the one he's just sketched, it must look like Jesus of Nazareth as he appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, or perhaps better, on the mountain of transfiguration, and where one would see him if one saw him, must therefore, and where one would see him if one saw him, must therefore be elsewhere than on the Eucharistic table, where he does not so appear. In other words, if you're really seeing Jesus, he's going to look like the first century Palestinian Jewish male that the people around him would have recognized when he was being led along the Via Dolorosa to, to the cross. That's his body. It will always be his body. And that's the only way in which he's embodied. But where is that elsewhere? The traditional answer is heaven to which we ascend, to which he ascend. The notion of a heaven into which a body could enter by rising from earth, suggested but not demanded by the biblical account of ascension, made no problem until Copernicus. 
the best available cosmological science, that of Ptolemy, pictured the universe as a concentric nest of crystalline shells, the outermost and most sublime of which marked off heaven, the part of the universe which God created to be his own accommodation within his creation. Into this heaven, the glorious, the glorified Jesus ascended, and there he will be seen when we are taken there. There he will be seen when we are taken there. So again, in that kind of Ptolemaic account of things, heaven is the created space, the furthest reach of created reality, the, the, the outermost band, the outermost ring. And we are going to be quite literally taken up there, quite literally. <clears throat> Copernicus undid this science. His picture of the universe contains no more and, and less metaphysically glorious spatial re regions and so no most glorious region reserved for God, where the embodied Christ might be at his right hand. A philosopher once asked me, I think to mock my insistence on the risen Christ's embodiment, why the risen Christ could not be hiding behind a black hole or something. Medieval depictions of the disciples looking up at a cloud from which dangle a pair of feet were straightforwardly intended. Onlookers now giggle nervously. One effect of the expulsion of the risen Christ from a heaven spatially related to earth is that it tempts adherents of the interpretation we have been considering to envision the risen Christ as occupying no space at all, that is, as having no body. So you can see, you know, Jens is grappling with what does it mean to affirm that Jesus is bodily resurrected and that he has a body and that is he's therefore in some sense spatially located and locatable, and yet is not out there like an alien. He's not spatially removed from us in that sense. Apart from the problem about heaven, the tradition just sketched is a profound and plausible reading of real presence. To repeat, despite what presents itself, Christ is really present. The basic structure of thought is shared by Reformed and standard Catholic theology. In other words, Protestants and Catholics are essentially agreed on this. And both face the same next question. If the glorified body of Christ is in heaven, whatever we may now think that is, how does it get to the Eucharistic table? Right? So the glorified body of Christ is in some sense in heaven. And yet, if he's really present in communion, it is also somehow his body being given and received sacramentally. According to standard Catholic theology, the body does not get there at all. The multiple Eucharistic presence, the multiple Eucharistic presence of the body is a sheerly exceptional act of God, contrary to all that is otherwise proper to bodies. A, a miracle, right? an exception, an act which the church is divinely authorized to invoke. To invoke. The question of why the present body does not look like a human organism is answered in similar fashion. The appearances of what is on the altar are those by which we usually identify the substance as bread and wine, but by the same unique act of God, the substance behind them is now Christ's body. Right? So there's a, there's a kind of miracle that happens so that Jesus is really present under the appearances of bread and wine, but under the, the substance of the bread and wine. But they, they don't merely appear to be bread and wine. They, they truly are. But they are not only bread and wine. They are bread and wine in such a way that Christ's body is brought to bear in them. 
In re- that's Catholic theology in Jen's estimation. In Reformed theology, the Spirit uses the Eucharistic elements as symbols of Christ's passion, as visible and tangible words of the gospel by which he creates faith. And to faith, spatial separation is no impediment. Communicants are in the heavenly presence of Christ by virtue of their faith. Nor are the appearances a problem. The bread and cup in their ritual context look exactly like what they are, symbols of body and blood, right? So Reformed theology under, and here that he's using it as before, as something distinct from Lutheran theology. The point is that these symbols, bread and wine, they've become symbols because of their location liturgically. They're doing exactly what they seem to be doing, symbolizing. It is our faith that connects those symbols to the Christ who is not present with us spatially. He's in heaven, but by the power of the spirit activating our faith, we are able to connect to the Christ who is present in heaven through these symbols. At just this juncture, let me intrude a second question from left field. What does one do with leftovers? The Protestant version of the general framework just described permits us to think that when the service is over and we no longer experience the bread and cup as signs as signs of Christ's body, they no longer have this role and may be disposed of as is most convenient. It is innumerable in in innumerable Protestant, including Lutheran question mark congregations, their bread goes back in the box and the wine is either poured down the sink or back into the bottle to turn sour and everything goes in the altered guild's pantry, which will which many will see as abuse if there ever was one. We turn to the second possible reading of real presence. So we're going to come back to that question of reserve sacrament later, but again, to keep our eye on the ball, the question at play here is where is Jesus? How is Jesus bodily present? And that, of course, draws us into questions about ascension. It draws us into questions about the sacraments. It draws us into questions about prayer, mystical experience. Like all, the whole range of our life with God really looks differently depending on how you answer that question. Like, what is the relationship between the risen Jesus and space and time? So at this point, he turns to the second possible reading of real presence. Christ's body really is what appears as present, the bread and cup. There does not need to be another body somewhere else identified with the bread and cup, whether in reform fashion by faith or in Catholic fashion by supernatural causality, the, the priestly power to invoke through the words of institution, the body of Christ and whatever heaven might be, we do not need to envision it as spatially separated from the bread and cup. So this, this is where Jen's metaphysics take us that the body and the blood are not symbolically represented in the bread and wine and they're, they're not miraculously made somehow to share in the body and blood of the Jesus who is in heaven. The body and the blood, the bread and the wine, are the body of Jesus. Where is Jesus? He's on the table. Where is heaven? It is here. We've entered into it. 
as we've lifted up our hearts to the Lord. I'm going to skip ahead again. In modern jargon, we might state Radbertus's position by stipulating that the proposition, this is the body of Christ, is an identity statement, in which this refers to a visible and tangible body, the bread and cup on our altars, and body of Christ to the visible and tangible body that walked in Palestine and ascended after the resurrection. A few years ago, a theological blogger summed up the import. Taken at his most drastic word, Redbertus means this. If we ask, what does the body of Christ now look like? We should answer, it looks like the consecrated bread and cup on that table. To be sure, asserting that these bodies are the same one calls for some revision of received metaphysics. I mean, how can it be that the body that was led down the Via Della Rosa, the body that was beaten, the body that was killed, the body that was buried, the body that Thomas saw in the resurrection appearances, how can it be that that body the body that was formed in the womb of Mary and the bread and wine that you and I receive on the Eucharistic table. How can that be the same body? Or what sense does that make? And he says, well, it doesn't make sense inside. Jen says it doesn't make sense inside of what we think we already know to be possible. It doesn't fit inside the conditions we've established by our theories about the nature of things. It doesn't make sense. And, then the question becomes, does that mean it's wrong or does that mean we need to revise what we think is possible? Do we need to rework what we mean when we talk about conditions? And, and do they get reworked around what happens with Jesus? And of course, you can tell by the way I'm asking that question. That is exactly what Jens thinks. We have to rework what we think is possible around what we have come to know to be true about Jesus. To be sure, asserting that these bodies are the same one calls for the revision of re received metaphysics. What is a body? If this bread and cup are identical with the body of the historical and risen Jesus can be true. What indeed, if this proposition is true, are time and space? What indeed, if this proposition is true, are time and space? And of course, what is heaven? If, if everything is getting reworked, around what God has done with Jesus. Every reality is being reconfigured by what has happened to him and in him. Then what do we mean by time and space? What do we mean by heaven? And why should not received metaphysics be revised to accommodate biblical truth? Like, biblical truth, as it tells us about what God has done with Jesus what Jesus has done and what has happened with him. It is, and this is the concluding paragraph of this, this essay, it is in my judgment a chief intellectual glory of Lutheranism that in the 16th and 17th century it made a start on dealing with such questions, striving to discern an ontology shaped to the Christian sacramental assertions rather than the more usual other way around. Indeed, much was accomplished on these lines. So his his insistence, Jen's insistence, is the Lutherans were right here, that the the risen Jesus is bodily present in a way unique to him, and in in a way that then 
reconfigures everything else. We, we must not think we know what's possible for Jesus. He's the one who determines what is and therefore what is possible. That Jesus is creating and recreating conditions. He's altering the conditionality of existence for himself in ways that are good for us. This, I think, has to be exactly right. I'll, I'll add this as, as, as I start to wrap, wrap up this, this kind of first reflection. What Jens does not quite say, at least not anywhere that I can recall, is that when we're talking about the body of Jesus, we need to think that all modes of being are taken into him. That, that because of who he is, his finitude, his bodiliness, has been made capable of all that God is and does. It, the, the finite has been, been, has been shown to be and has been made to be capable of the infinite. In fact, the next chapter that I'm going to look at briefly is about the, the capex. It is about the finitum capex infinity, the finite accommodating the in, infinite. And he's exactly right to think, Jens is exactly right, I believe, to think that that's what's true of Jesus, right? That, that Jesus, of course, is a particular person with a particular history. He has a mom. Jesus is embodied. He has a body that can be smelled. He has a, a body that can be wounded, mortally wounded, that can be killed, that can be buried. And that body is resurrected. But because that body is resurrected and not resuscitated, it that body is taken up, so to speak, into the unconditional life of God that conditions all things. And just for that reason, that Jesus, that same Jesus, that same embodied Jesus, that same body of Jesus is available, that's Jensen's words, wherever God is. To be at the right hand of God is to be available wherever God is acting. And God, of course, as sovereign, as the omnipotent and omnipresent sovereign, is present everywhere, doing exactly what needs to be done for creation to be itself and for creatures to be moved toward the future God means for them. So this, this is how Jen starts to sum up his view. Given what was to be explained, the multiple presence of the embodied Christ, one would have thought that Christology would be central to any explanation. It turns out, though, in, in Christian tradition, that's too rarely true, that when we're thinking about what's possible sacramentally, what's possible mystically, what's possible in, in providence, providentially, we tend to think about conditions that are set in which God must act. But he, the Lutherans were right, and before them, the, the Neo-Chalcedonians, Maximus, and others were right. There are no conditions for God. God is the condition that conditions all things. 
And he does so in Jesus, the one who's taken on our conditionness and reconditioned it, reconditioned our condition. You know, that the line in the song, I just stopped by to see what condition my condition was in. Like Jesus is that condition that our condition is in. You know, we, we are every reality is is touched by who he is and what he is and what he's undergone. Nothing happens to Jesus. Nothing has happened to Jesus that he does not mean to happen differently for us. And he lets it happen to himself. As Jen said in the interview with Father Kenneth Tanner and I, Father Ken Tanner and I did an interview with Jens not long before Jens passed. And in it, Jens said, Jesus, God in Jesus, does not suffer the fact that he suffers. He suffers, but he does not suffer the fact that he suffers. Nothing happens to him but what he wants to happen differently for us. Like that, that is what's playing out in all of reality. So, again, I'll quote Jensen. The Reformed theologians argued that God the Son is ubiquitous and therefore present when the Eucharist is celebrated, but not as his human body. His human reality is present to us when we commune, but this is because by faith we are in his heavenly presence. Right? So, of course, the Son is everywhere. But his body's not everywhere. It's located in heaven. And Jensen suggests, and I think he's right, that Calvin still has, in spite of the fact that he's denying it, Calvin is still thinking in, in that kind of Ptolemaic view of space. Ha- he's haunted by that. But it's faith that takes us to where he is. But the Lutherans, over against that, and over against what at the time was Catholic teaching, argued something very differently. Something, something quite different. According to them, divine attributes are in such a fashion possessed by the person of the incarnate Son that he exercises them not only insofar as he is divine, but also insofar as he is human. Thus, Christ exercises his divine ubiquity also insofar as he is human. Christ's complete humanity, concretely considered as the humanity of this particular person, is itself ubiquitous. Therefore, nothing additional to the incarnation itself is needed for Christ's human body to be on the many altars as promised. Right? So when we say this is the body and this is the blood, we mean that quite literally. This is the body. This is the blood. How can that be true? And what does it have to say to us about Advent? It, how it can be true is because it's Jesus. And this is why Bonifer will insist the question is not how, but who. The question is not how, but who. How is a condition question. But this one this who is the one who sets the condition. He's the one who makes the condition to be in the condition it's in. And therefore, Jesus' relationship to time and space is a creative one. It's not a constrained one. It's not a caused and affected one. It is a creative one. Jesus' relationship to time and space is one in which nothing good is lost. He is embodied. He is embodied in a way that has been infinitized. It has been made eternal. It has been made by his resurrection and ascension through the power of the Holy Spirit 
made so that his body is whatever is needed at any particular moment, at any particular time. Our bodies change over the course of our lives. In, in what sense is this body I have now, the body that you're hearing, like the body that I had in the womb of my mother? I didn't sound like this then. I didn't look like this then. My knowing wasn't, wasn't fit to what I know now, and so on and so on and so on. Our bodies change. Our bodies change dramatically at, at the, you know, every level, right? From the ways in which our, our growth changes us, the ways in which our suffering changes us, the ways in which our experience in any given moment, what happens when we are delighted, the ways in which our bodies change to, to fit the, the mood, the spirit of, of any given moment. Our bodies are so much more variable, I think, than, than we recognize. But don't, don't mishear me. Jesus is there bodily. Don't mishear what Jens is saying. Jesus is bodily resurrected, but he's not resuscitated into conditions that cannot be altered. He is raised as the one who sets the conditions for all. And his body is present to us as we need it to be. And that is, of course, what sacramentally possible and realizable. And also what's possible in terms of his coming to us. What I'm going to be arguing through these these, the, these conversations through this entire series is that what we're hoping for in Advent is the coming of Jesus. That's not something that's going to happen on a timeline at the end of the timeline. And it's not something that's going to happen in space, the Mount of Olives, that's going to be you know projected around the world on news programs. It is, in fact, going to be an event that happens to time and to space and that the coming of Jesus that we expect is not in the future in the way that the rest of the day I have planned is in the future, but it is in God as my future and also my past and also my present. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what we all are hoping for, not wishing for, but hoping for. We'll stop there for now.